Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that、uh, I have a giveaway that's going on right now. I'm giving away three books by three podcast guests Worry Free Money by Shannon Lee Simmons, The Burnout Gamble by Hamza Khan, and Young, Fun, and Financially Free by Leanna Hawkins. So if you want to win that bundle of three books, just head over to bowhumphreys.comslash giveaway and enter. The giveaway ends on August 31st at the end of the day. If you're listening to this in the future and you've missed this giveaway, just you know, head over to bowhumphreys.comslash giveaway anyway, because I probably have another one going on. I'm going to try to keep these up as much as I can, give away books from podcast guests and maybe other prizes and other awesome stuff. As long as people keep entering, I'll keep trying to give stuff away. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is the Personal Finance Show. Boyce Collins doesn't want you to become house poor. As a mortgage broker, his responsibility is to get you the best mortgage for you. This isn't always the case when you go to get a mortgage from a bank. And the best mortgage isn't necessarily the one that leaves you strapped for cash if the interest rate changes by a quarter of a percent or leaves you with an empty bank account every month. If you listen to the show, you've heard me say this a bunch of times. Banks care about making money, they don't care about you. After talking to Boyce for over an hour, I actually believe that he cares about his clients. A house is usually the biggest purchase of your life. So, for the biggest purchase of your life, it really makes sense to me to go see a specialist. Boyce currently works for the Personal Mortgage Group, a brokerage founded by his mom, Suzanne, in the early 90s. This brokerage is all about trust, integrity, and financial wellness. They have 92 five star reviews on Google. So if you're in the Hamilton area, you should really check them out. But Boyce wasn't always the mortgage expert he is today. Here he is to tell his personal finance story. Growing up, my mom and I moved around a lot, and、uh, she was a single mom, and we moved from Edmonton to Ontario. How old are you? I was five. Okay. So you're, you were born in, in Alberta. In Edmonton. Yeah, I was yeah. born in Alberta. And then、uh, when I first realized how completely brutally broke we are, was when、uh, we were renting a place here in Hamilton and、uh, we had to move in subletters into our apartment to sort of stay afloat. Wow. I mean, how I, big was the apartment? Not all that big. Although、yeah. it was one of the big old three story walk ups、like、here. Subletters while you were still there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that was interesting. And I think, you know, it, it's not like I learned, you know, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I definitely、uh, understood where s you know, because it was a relatively affluent part of Hamilton, relatively speaking. And、uh, none of my friends had to do that. Did you say it was a house that you're in now still? No, no. no、uh, we were renting. It's actually just around the corner on Charlton. Okay. That、uh, yeah. one, the Charlton and,、um, and uh, Hess, actually. Okay, yeah. yeah.、So、just down the street. We、yeah. won't reveal my exact address to everyone.、Okay. But <laughs> yeah, well, you can edit that out, right? <laughs> <laughs> If you're a subscriber, you can just look it up at the end of the email. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. exactly. Yeah, so I mean, like, you know, and, and she, had to, she had to work pretty well constantly growing up. So、and、what was she doing for, for at work? At the time, so when she moved out here, uh, uh, her sister, who had remained here, was、um, a 
you know, sort of up and coming in real estate. And so she tried her hand. She'd always been in sales. She worked in retail, like, like kind of higher up in Club Monaco and things like that in, uh, out west. And, uh, and so she's always been in sales. So she took up a real estate position and, you know, getting started in real estate is pretty grueling. Yeah. In terms of the hours you're working all the time, you're shepherding people around. Well, how do you, how do you get, like, I mean, maybe you know a little bit about this. How do you get started? Like you don't, some people are like selling the million dollar houses. How do you get to that point or yeah, close to that? Well, as far as I understand, because my aunt is still very much active. Yeah. Like I think she's got 35, almost 40 years in the industry mm. now. From her perspective, it's, it's, it's old school grinding sales. These days, people will try to hook up with obviously larger brokerages and things like that. So you, so you, same back then, you kind of hook up with a brokerage and then word of mouth through your friends and family, get a couple listings under your belt. Bench advertising, I guess. All yeah, that yeah, stuff, I've right? seen a lot of the benches around here. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, it, real estate's a tough slog, but it, it it seems like it's like any industry. The bar is set, not any industry, but any industry in finance. Like the bar is set fairly low. Mm. Uh, the bar for entry is set fairly low. Yeah, but a lot of people think they see what kind of commissions you can make. And so they think, you know, I'll just sign up for this, get my real estate license, which isn't all that much work. That's right. Sell a million dollar house and, and uh, uh, take the rest of the year off. I'm going to Costa Rica or whatever. Sounds uh, great. That's a direct quote from a real estate agent. I was Is working that- with recently. <laughs> a young guy. I don't think he's, uh, did it happen for him? No, <laughs> no it was a $250 thousand dollar house in Hagersville. So sure. Sure. I mean, that's not terrible though, right? No, it's all right. But I guess the idea is that, you know, like so many things, there's a culture of, of, uh, getting rich quick. Or yeah. not even quick, but it, you know that that there are these sort of fast track or like easy easy ways to to get money, and uh, and in my experience, that's just never the case. Like no, the, it might be short lived, right? Certainly, like I mean, you, you could do it once maybe, but to help to to think that it's going to be consistent, and then what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Right? Well, I mean, you well, yeah, that I mean, money forever. You've got to keep working at it and keep building. I guess you know, in real estate in particular, you got to build your personal brand and all these kinds of things. But you know the way it is at least where we are here in southern ontario it's like real estate agents are kind of a dime a dozen and mm-hmm. and and i think a lot of people are if they don't get in with the right brokerage or with the right mentor they're pretty you know unpleasantly surprised by how difficult it is to actually make a living doing it so how did your mom do did she she did not it? do well no okay no at the time she's a she's an ind- very fiercely independent person sure and so the idea of having to sort of kowtow to clients mm. uh, wasn't didn't fit with her personal yeah. sort of ethic. I think I'm I'm personally a lot better at that. I don't mind sort of. Can you swear on this podcast? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> I don't mind eating shit here and there. Like I don't really yeah. have any kind of pride. It's well, at that's the end of the day. that's a plus uh, in some ways. It's actually I feel like it's a skill that people uh, build, or if you have it already, like. It's really useful because everyone's going to give you shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's unfortunate. Like there's, at least I know from, from working in the mortgage end of things and having a lot of experience with real estate agents and things like that, there is a, there, there are a lot, a lot of big egos involved, Mm. but if you can sort of stomp that down or not worry about it or realize that, that, uh, you know, your pride doesn't really mean all that much in that life. Uh, you can be fairly successful, and you're going to be happier, people. right? Well, yeah, because you're not going to take everything to heart. Oh, you're not yeah. going to you're not going to let people drag you down. I mean, uh, you know, you you always want to care about people, sure. right? You yeah. always want to care about uh, like people's impression of you because that's your business. You know, they want you want referrals. You want to sort of, of like course. build that brand or whatever, but. At the end of the day, the pride can certainly get in your way as well, right? Yeah. I mean, not just, not just, you know, with clients or with like the consumer, but also like interpersonally with coworkers and things like that. Yeah. Pride can be really dangerous. It's a, Uh, it's bridges burned. And, uh, yeah, like some people just travel through just burning every 
business that they go, that they go through. Certainly. But okay, so wh- where did your mom end up then? This was early on in the whole sort of mortgage brokerage industry okay. here in Canada. So mortgage brokering was not uncommon in the commercial sector prior to say 30, 35 years ago, just simply because, you know, major banks would have a hard time sort of justifying the risk associated with lending against certain smaller projects. So if you weren't like a, a well-established builder, developer, whatever, you're not going to get any money from the bank simply because the risk was too high. Um, or you wouldn't have enough capital to even start. So private lenders would start, you know, basically, in, you know, private citizens with a good amount of money to lend mm-hmm. would take risks on building projects and things like that, new construction projects and that, and and uh, factories, whatever, cemeteries, like anything that was hard to get money for. Uh, and that sort of, at least it's my understanding, spawned the commercial brokerage industry. And then from there, residential sort of like uh, straight-to-consumer Mortgage brokering became kind of a service for people who, you know, maybe had been bankrupt or who had damaged credit or unusual employment, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you pay a premium to work with a mortgage broker to establish a loan for a house or whatever. And then over the years, people higher up at the banks, I think CIBC was one of the first, I could be wrong about this. Actually, don't quote me on any of this. Um, I think CIBC in Canada was one of the first sort of banks to start becoming broker friendly. Okay. And uh, they established what what I would now call kind of like an an A side to brokering. So A consumers, and by that I mean people who could walk into any bank and get a loan, would start to use mortgage brokers. And the mortgage, uh, because, you know, the mortgage brokers were purported to have a higher amount of expertise in the field, maybe be a little bit more critically minded and sort of outside the box thinkers, and also deliver a higher level of service than than people were getting from the banks. So the banks would... Like what? Delegate some of their business? Yeah. Well, the, I mean, so so if as I'll use CIBC as an example because mm-hmm. they were kind of one of the pioneers. So you could always walk into a CIBC branch and get a, a residential mortgage. Sure. Uh, and then, you know, it was probably somewhere on the corporate level that somebody saw this sort of trend of mortgage brokering and decided that they could funnel off or at, at least aggregate some business from outside of the branch level bank. So mm-hmm. meaning that people who may not be CIBC clients would go to a mortgage broker and get placed with what they called a first line mortgage. So first line mortgages was their the broker mortgage division. Okay. And, uh, and then, yeah, it kind of, it kind of took off from there. I'm sure that if any mortgage brokers have actually listened to this, they're probably going to be pulling their hair out. because I'm probably missing a lot here. It's but. okay. This is all very low, very low level stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, don't, you don't have to get the details right or anything. Right. I didn't do any research. But the, yeah, but the concept being that people would go into the bank and the bank would say, you're not necessarily our cup of tea, but go over there. Well, that was originally, yeah, originally, okay, but not even. But so like among brokers then, it was, like I said, it was more of a value add. So you would go, mm. you, you know, any, any doctor or professional, you know, somebody with a good job, good salary, yeah. good credit, all that would still go to a mortgage broker simply because, you know, the mortgage broker tends to handle uh, more aspects of the whole process. Specialists. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So they'll they'll sort of stick handle the lawyer, they'll stick handle the lender. Uh, an increasing chunk of our business is coming from people People who have already been, say, pre-approved at the bank or mm-hmm. existing bank clients who are just sort of shocked at, at the sort of paucity of knowledge of the person sitting across from For them. sure, because are they are they are they supposed to be mortgage specialists in the bank when you go in? Or yeah, are they and I mean again, I don't want to like step on anybody's no, toes here. I'm sure there's people at the bank that know exactly what they're yeah. doing. But it's, it's you know, increasingly it's my experience that uh, branch level bankers are 
they're just not attracting the same kind of talent that they used to attract. Like, uh, mm. and, and, and not only that, somebody who's sort of selling you a mortgage in, in one appointment, the next appointment is trying to sell insurance or, of or you know, some kind of investment product or whatever. So, and ultimately they're really just given a list of products to sell and they plug information into a computer and then that computer spits out yes or no for a pre-approval. And, you know, in terms of like their ability to underwrite a file and, and know all the, say in Canada, insurer guidelines, uh, and then their own bank's guidelines, um, they just don't have that knowledge anymore. There's somebody sitting in a desk in Toronto who knows that. Now we're, now we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but can you just describe what underwriting is, uh, like in the most basic terms you can think of? Sure. Because so, it comes up a lot, and I still don't have a full grasp of it, or maybe I do, and I constantly forget. Yeah, well, it's, it's not. So, I mean, an underwriter, whether you're dealing with an insurance company or dealing with a bank, is essentially like the gatekeeper. So, uh, in my case, or even in, even if you're dealing with a bank, the, the person at the bank or the mortgage broker, whoever puts together the application, uh, sort of explains and notes why they think this is a good deal and why you should give this person half a million dollars okay, or whatever. Yeah. And then the underwriter sitting at their office in Toronto or wherever it happens to be, and they kind of go through all the information, compare it to the, the you know, check off the boxes of rules that they need to they check off. Standards. And if it fits, yeah. then uh, then they're the person who approves or declines the mortgage. Okay, so right. it's really the person or person or group of people who approve a mortgage Precisely. and they have they each different bank or company would have different maybe some similar rules but also maybe some more relaxed rules depending yeah. on who they are and what their rates are so in well yeah so i mean you know in canada it's pretty straightforward i, I understand that it's a little bit more complicated in the states but in canada you essentially you've got your big five banks and then what we call monoline lenders which are of the same class of mortgages so we're talking you know very qualified borrowers, excellent credit, excellent jobs, mm -hmm. consistent employment, that kind of thing. So you have that level, right, where you're getting the best interest rates, the best terms and conditions, right? And then, you know, for people who are, say, self-employed, who have difficult to prove income or perhaps have gone through a bankruptcy or have just been sort of like lax with their credit, there's a whole other strata of banks and lending institutions that will deal with those people. Obviously, you're paying higher rates. Yeah. In that case, you'd be probably charging up, they'd be charged upfront fees, uh, and then, you know, and then you get down into like the private lenders, which is a kind of a whole other ballgame altogether. Right? And that's private just people, financing. people usually know each other and, uh, they assess their risk and charge higher rates. It, not even it's not a shady business. It's, well, it can be an oh, extremely okay. so, shady. So, business. Some of it is shady. Yeah, but some of it is legitimate as well. There's oh yeah, I mean, lenders. the problem with this industry is is regulated as it is in Canada, and that's wonderful. I mean, it, it's part of the reason that we mm -hmm. were sort of protected from the crash in two thousand and eight was because yeah. our banking system is much heavy, more nice. heavily regulated. As good as that is, there's there's still a it's still kind of like I wouldn't say the wild west in terms of private lending, but it, at private lending, it's like. If you're the consumer and you sign on the dotted line and you're signing up for unfavorable terms and conditions or something that's sort of setting you up to fail, well, you don't really have any recourse at that point. Really? You know, there's a lawyer involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how... Like, there always has to be a lawyer involved no matter... Or, and the lawyer might be shady too, though? Well, I mean, I like again, I don't want to cast too many aspersions, no, but course, I have but seen it happen. Exists, sure, I have right? seen We're it happen. We're not saying this is the majority or anything. We just... It is out there. We yeah. don't want to say that it, no, oh, it's I, I mean, I could, I could honestly... Like, if this was a horror story podcast, I could go on you could just, and on. You got the... Like, I've seen some, I've seen some wow. horrendous things, but... You know, I've also seen some pretty horrendous maneuvers pulled by major banks. Too. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, it's certainly a sketchier, you know, I'll use the word sketchier sort of environment to work in yeah. on the private side. That's if you're ever looking for a good mortgage broker, if you need private funds, make sure you have a good mortgage broker who is not sketchy. And, and so the difference between a mortgage broker and an official one, I guess, 
um, and a private lender, one with, say, a good reputation that just lends out private mortgages, mm -hmm. what is the major difference there? Most mortgage brokers are sort of mandated by uh, the Ministry of Financial Services okay. to act on behalf or in the best interest of the borrower. Okay. Okay. Whereas the lender... Is that fiduciary responsibility? Yeah, is yeah. that Because okay. we talk about that sometimes when it comes to investments, but... Yeah, yeah absolutely. Please. Now there are certain, there are other types of sort of uh, mortgage products where the, a mortgage broker can act on behalf of both the lender and the broker okay. and, and vice versa. Uh, but but by and large, when you're talking sort of residential consumer mortgages, mm -hmm. that, that we're all mandated to work on behalf of the borrower. So that's the major difference between the lender, the private lender, and the borrower, okay, and, and the mortgage broker is that you know we're supposed to be there to sort of safeguard the interests of the of the consumer. I like that. Yeah, and I mean, and I mean, it's really it's really written heavily into our course material when we're becoming accredited. You yeah, know? and especially not so much at the uh, at the agent level, but once you become a broker, they really just hammer down on on what your responsibilities to the client are. And and I mean, I'm actually fairly impressed with the level, like you know, but like sort of what our governing bodies do to sort of ensure that now. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, as an industry, we really want to, especially after 2008 and like movies oh. like the big short and things like yeah. that, we really want to sort of reassure the consumer that, you know, there is a lot of value and a lot of protection built into our industry. Yeah. Right? Well, that's good. And the more strict they make our industry, the more strict they make that oversight, the more confidence the consumer has in us and the more sort of market share we can chip away from the banks who, as far as I'm concerned, when you're dealing direct with a, you know, a mortgage advisor or whatever they're called at whatever bank you're at, mm -hmm. they, they don't, they're not governed under the same rules as we are. Interesting. Right? Really? And they're, they are mandated to, well, not mandated officially necessarily, but it stands to reason that they're going to want to make as much money for their shareholders. That's what we hear bank, from the banks in general. As possible. So, yeah. Right? It makes sense if they're a bank employee. Yeah. So this is how it is now. And we'll get back to, we're going to talk about more about this later. Now let's go back to when it was your your mom's heyday, mm -hmm. and what decade was this? So she's been in business, I think, almost thirty years at this point. Okay, wow. Yeah, so that was really sort of in the earliest days of mortgage brokering. So the real estate company that she worked for here in Hamilton is Alec Murray, which is a sort of long gone, but oh, at the time okay. very successful okay. successful real estate brokerage. And I might be getting this kind of wrong, but I think they opened up a mortgage sort of brokerage as part of their overall okay. real estate yeah. brokerage, right? It was makes kind of sense. Like a affiliated. Sense. Yeah, you can yeah. just funnel business from sure. the real estate end right through the mortgage uh, end. And uh, and so she became affiliated with them. And then I think uh, that first line mortgages actually allowed brokers to work under their kind of branding umbrella as well. And so she developed a, a small sort of, I think it was in, in a plaza up on the mountain or something like that. She developed, a, like opened a little office there. And then promptly, I think, I think, well, I can't remember exactly what the, how it went, but she, anyway, she ended up starting her own, her own business yeah. after about, I think about five years of brokering underneath other businesses. She started her own company at that point. And, uh, and what are you doing at this point? Are you in high school? You still, no, I still would have, no, I was still a kid. I guess I would have been um, in elementary school, if not early middle school. But are you, are you absorbing any of this? Like you're in the business now, obviously. Are you absorbing it as your kid? You, do you know? What mom does, and I, I don't think to I, understand. Is she teaching you. I think I had no, I, like I don't. I, she didn't teach me per se, but I think I had like a reasonable understanding of what she was doing. Mm. I mean, when you're that age, though, it's like yeah, it's or know, whatever. I, Parents I, I do no whatever. idea really what she was doing. So, really. in terms of your first exposure to like money or anything, like well, when did you start earning money? I guess like my first actual job 
Well, no, I mean, I, I worked in like sort of in landscaping and things like that from a very early okay, age. Yeah. So I got, I went over to, uh, my uncle uh, was a lands, owned a small landscaping company in England. Oh, wow. And so for the summers, she'd ship me out there. When you I, went I to think, England? Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. When I was like 12, <laughs> that's, I think. I think the that's the first. Yeah. yeah. My first job was in England. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, yeah. I mean, I had worked on my cousin uh, growing up. My cousins are all sort of family farmers. So I always worked okay. on farms growing up before that but i mean it was unpaid none of the kids got paid up there we just took in like the hay and stuff like that and you're and you're coming less so you said you came from you weren't uh you were pretty broke you know, yeah i mean we were like she, i think you know the again my my recollection of it's pretty sketchy but based on what happened in in edmonton she was, i think my mom had sort of like left a pretty good job or was you know like it was it was a messy situation it was a divorce yeah, and, and yeah. all that kind of okay. stuff and i mean in my business you see people who go through divorces I'm and sure that can, you do that can, uh, yeah you know it's crippling or can be crippling financially oh, yeah. i think she was kind of in that space at the time okay and so you know she kind of cut it and it's like and you had family here or yeah no? her you? family's all from here yeah okay yeah, so yeah, my dad's family's all from out west and and so she moved out there originally to be with him so you two me. you two are here and you have this you know, knowledge of not having a lot of money and maybe you're not even, so you're now you're making your some spending money in England. No, yeah, not even sort of? honestly, honestly, like no? I think she, I think my, my aunt and uncle were paying me like 90 pounds a week Okay, to work there, which I guess at the time, did you have to have pay for room and board no, or anything? No, no, no. And they took, I mean, they took care of me. It was basically spending money sure. to, for the trip. Yeah, okay. Was, yeah, of course. Cause you're over there. Yeah, I wasn't coming. I wasn't starting a savings. And they flew you over like too or no? I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm you don't assuming remember my paying for a flight. That. Somebody yeah, else did. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else did. I was just a kid. It was just throw away money then you, yeah, you remember yeah. like saving any of it building no, up a bank account no, I mean, and like you know full disclosure like i had I, I never really was much of a saver i just kind of lived frugally yeah okay you know, i never made a ton of money after I, I sort of consistently worked in the trades on some in summertime and things like that yeah. so i'd always work for sort of local carpenters and things like that just doing bitch work and um, and yeah. then my first real job would have been, I guess when I was, I think as soon as I turned 16, I got a job washing dishes at Kelsey's in West. Hill. So like with a real T4. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. yeah. And okay. I remember actually going to that job and, and they'll be like, so can we have your social insurance number? And I'm just like, I don't know what I, that is. I'm like, pretty sure I don't have one. Yeah. I know. I know a hundred percent that I don't have one. I think they still let me work, which I, at the time, you know, that's the nineties. Right. So it's just like, I guess at the time they were like, well, roll the dice. Hopefully it's nothing like, happens. I have this like really like beaten down card in my drawer over there yeah. right that i've had since well i guess when do we actually I think get you the can card? get them when you're 14 or 16 yeah whenever you like get that. they actually do they still send you a card you know, do you know i think I, mean? I like my memory is obviously bad on this because yeah. it was so long ago but i i i think i had to go get one i don't think i just had one is it ontario or is it canada i forget if it's provincial it, or it's, not it's federal yeah okay yeah, so, if it's it's federal, so you would have maybe no you wouldn't have got one in, in alberta because you were too young. I was too young so they might have mailed you one if maybe. you but yeah it's like something nobody really thinks about but it's like so important for everything yeah yeah that's how is. they connect you to all of the things all of the taxes and everything like that and uh Okay, so you're working at Kelsey's. You're getting your. So this is you did back of house. Then you yeah, were dishwasher. Uh, did and you I, ever do service? No, no. See, and that's the everybody I talk to like they work some kind of uh, job in customer service. Mm. 
but you got out of that. To this day, uh, being a dishwasher was one of my favorite jobs. Like really? I would go back to that in a heartbeat. I love being <laughs> a dish pig. It was the best. I was really good at it. I loved like the sort of frenetic atmosphere of working in a kitchen. Really? Yeah. Because this is the job that people hate. I know. I know. But I mean, most of the jobs I've ever had are jobs that people really hate. And uh, I love them. Like for the most part, there's not too many sort of like labor style jobs that I wouldn't continue to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's kind of like office space. Remember the season movie office space? Okay. Yeah. Where by the end of the movie, he's just like shoveling gravel and he's just <laughs> as happy as he's ever been. He went from like a corporate job. That's basically me, except for I'm going the other direction. So why, why do you think you didn't uh, like go into that? I don't know. I don't know. I was a pretty like aimless, aimless yeah. teenager. You know, I wasn't aimless. Like I was just, let's just say I had some like strong political views and uh okay yeah yeah gotcha <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know like I, you know the idea of uh well, like are you asking me why i didn't go to like serve it or like well kitchens no and there's like, like i mean something that you obviously you have fond memories of this but like any like any of the manual labor type stuff because you're not doing that now no or but maybe it, you are on the side well somewhere. i am still quite a bit on the side yeah I mean, sure I, I still so that I, I worked for i was a carpenter for well about 10 years okay so consistently you, so you did you did yeah. go into it just you're not yeah i did just, just not right now yeah I, okay so yeah let's keep going then so you uh you said you're frugal but really no savings plan. Does that mean that did you just had money in the bank, but you didn't plan to have it? Yeah, basically. And I mean, I always, I, you know, once, once my mom started sort of getting, becoming successful in her business was yeah. kind of, I guess I would have been around maybe 16, 17 when sure. things really started to take off for her. And she like, busted ass like i got to say i was going to ask how does she do that she just oh, like just she hustled. she hustled like yeah. hustled really hard like i look at her sometimes and it's like it was sheer force of will wow that made that happen not going to end up back in the situation from Edmonton no and, no yeah. and i mean she was like there was times when we were when i was in elementary school where she was working you know real estate or yeah, I guess it would have been real estate in the beginning. And then like she was a waitress at night, you know. Okay, so she like, was working multiple jobs. She was too. working all the time. Wow, yeah. okay. Yeah. So you're a teenager. You're probably mostly taking care of yourself at yep. this point because you're old enough. Yeah, so I mean, she was, I mean, I was a pretty independent kid. So yeah. she, and I was on my own. Like I didn't have any brothers or sisters. Just the two of you. So it was just the two of okay. us. So I, she trained me to be pretty self-sufficient from sure. an early age. yeah. You know, once she started to be, become successful or a little bit more successful, um, you know, I was kind of in high school. I didn't really give a shit about much yeah. in those days. I ended up getting an apartment with a friend of mine and uh, before university. Okay. I, so I took a year off from high school. This was when they were still grade, grade 13 or OAC or whatever. Yeah. And I worked in a wrecking yard for about a year and a half, like just earning cash. And so at that time, it was like, you know, it just seemed like amazing money. Every week I'd walk yeah. out with a wad of cash and blow it. And well, you're, <laughs> but you're saying you're blowing it, but you're not blowing it. You're well, still I was able like, to provide for myself. Yeah, you're yeah. able to provide for yourself. Yeah. You always had money in the bank yeah. uh, in terms of like at that point. Well, you're not, I guess, are you 18 by now? Uh, yeah, I guess I would have been right about it. Right like, but 18. no, like no dabbling in the credit. Did your mom instill that into you? Like, no, like not really. I, I I had a credit card and I don't think I ever really used it. Again, because I was making cash, I just sort of always had a pocket full of cash. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that's awesome. I was never making enough money to save, put it that way. I guess yeah. that's the best way to put it. Maybe I would have saved, but with credit, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really use it. I remember when I was in, I think like elementary school or something, I ended up, I had my own library card 
and I rented a book or I, I let took a book out for a friend of mine for like a school project or yeah. something and he never took it back and I ended up in collections <laughs> over a wow. library oh, like, yes that does happen. I guess so if you're asking what my first experience with credit is oh, I was my, my first experience was like maybe being like I don't know 12 and being in collections and you my got mom, a call yeah my mom losing oh. her mind right because <laughs> she's just like you're doomed to how like this is your first thing like your first experience with credit and you're oh, already no. screwed up so yeah, so I'm assuming you have a pretty good credit rating now yeah it's not bad <laughs> it's not bad I mean I've got some like I've got some, the credit's easy like maintaining a credit rating is easy um, if you follow a couple of basic rules and it's part of what we try to do especially for first-time buyers mm-hmm. or younger borrowers in the office is like you know they don't teach any of this stuff in high school. That's it. People don't know these easy rules. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I mean, so I mean at the end, at the end of the day, like we could go on and on about, about sort of the cultural motivations for why people spend the money that they spend and all that stuff. Yeah. But I mean, suffice it to say people want to spend more than they have. And you know, with at the risk of sounding sort of like a conspiracy theorist or whatever, I don't think it's a conspiracy. Like uh, we're, we're trained to do that. You know, by the banks. We're well by the banks, by 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 Hallmark, by by consumer consumer culture, right? We are we are trained to spend money we don't have. And in but we believe it. We believe all of this crap, right? And it this is a this is a regular it's it's, unfortunately it's a topic that comes up all the time on this podcast because it's like you said, the most basic rule, right? Mm -hmm. If people just like earn the money first <laughs> and then bought the stuff. Like you're talking about, you're flush with cash. You're not saving, which is fine. You're young. Yeah. Uh, if you were getting into credit at that point, then that, that's a problem. It, it is a problem. But what you're doing, otherwise you're just living your life. Yeah. And it's, your, it's everyone's decision to not save for the future and, or start later or whatever they want. Um, and so n- no one really has an ability to judge that, right? Certainly. But I think we could totally judge you buying something that you, first of all, you don't need. Uh, with money you don't have. Yeah. I just wrote a blog post about it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, Well, and (laughs) I mean, and that's just it. And I mean, like I've, since I've sort of been become more well-established financially myself, once you have money, you start to think, or like, you know, say a reasonable job or whatever. Yeah. You start to think that it's okay that you become more, my experience is you become more blase with credit. Right? Mm. And it's like, you know, because oh, you'll be able to pay it. Yeah. I've got a line of credit. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this whatever ATV or whatever it's going to okay. be, you know what I yeah. mean? Or, or worse, like the, the things that people blow their money on are, are outrageous, right? Yeah, or just like tri- uh, trips or even like bottle service or whatever. Sure. Is, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So overpriced. To me. Well, and so, you know, but they, they think it's, it's so normal to sit on a good amount of personal debt. And, Mm. you know, due to the fact that we're not, or at least my opinion, due to the fact that we're not given any kind of education on what credit is and how much you're actually paying for what you're buying, um, you know, you can sort of be oblivious to that. And and so maybe you can service your debt. Maybe it's no problem for you and your lifestyle, you know, despite the fact that you bought this big toy, your, your life, you can maintain your lifestyle on the other end of that. At the end of the day, you're still throwing, you know, if it's a big enough toy, thousands of dollars away. And like you said, it's your choice and you can do that and you think you're always going to be able to service it. And, and what I want people to be able to see is their possible future of now they can't work anymore and they can't service that debt and then they go bankrupt and et cetera, et cetera. Sure. It's a, it's a spiral, right? And it's because we have this belief that we're invincible and that's, it's, it's nice. It's positive, right? I'm never going to get sick. Nothing's ever going to happen to me. 
but we also have to think about the possibilities. Well, it's interesting you say like the, you know the, you, you make that comment because uh, you know it's kind of the the psychology between the sort of boom bust economy that we live in, right? I was I, I, it was on Netflix, I think. I think it was actually called it was Terry, not Terry Gilliam. One of the Monty Python guys mm. did like an economics one hour episode or something like that. And uh, they were just talking about sort of the cyclical nature of the economy and how it is that we keep repeating these market crashes or market corrections and that psychologists and, or I I don't don't know if there's like psychological economists or whatever. Behavioral finance people. Sure. Yeah. yeah, Are looking, you know, look at that. And it's just like, we have this as humans or as a group, we have this contagious optimism. And when things are good, we just, we, we lose sight of the fact that things could ever get bad. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like it's bonkers it's right? nice in a way yeah it feels like, good at the oh, time that's great, positive. great like, the i time. love your positive attitude <laughs> yeah but not if it's not like gonna be true well and i mean if you know anybody i'm an optimist you know i'd love <laughs> yeah. for it to, but i'm also preparing well you've got to be a, you can be an optimist all day long and i mean that's a good it's a great way to be but i mean you can also be a, a very sort of simple student of history and just watch what's happened Mm. there's there's no way around it It, like history does repeat itself over and over and over again and and it's i don't know to me it was so interesting because like in my end to listen to somebody describe this sort of contagious optimism because i see it i see it every day i go to work yeah everybody's just like this you know this gravy train's never gonna stop so they're like i can afford this level of house and because at this specific interest rate and it's never going to change oh because my house is going to go up by 21 percent every every year year. yeah so you've been in the business uh in the mortgage business for how long well i've been licensed since 2008 okay yeah Uh, like sort of timing yeah (laughs) yeah exactly right yeah 2008 I should add at a time when there was zero percent financing in this wow, country. Wow! Yes, right. Yeah. And thirty-five, forty-year oh, amortizations. I'm glad we right? we don't have that anymore. We do, well, we don't, but I could. It's we we're darn close to it. Oh man! Um, but I mean, five percent down is almost one hundred percent financing. It is, isn't it? With your CMHC premium, you're basically putting two and a half percent down. You at are, that point, yeah, or less. Um, uh, where was I going with that? Do you um, even license? Oh, license. Yeah. So basically, I worked for I think about. Two years after I got originally got my license, sort okay. of on an official basis. I worked in the office on and off through high school and university. So this as well. is working for your mom's business. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And just to step back then, so the, to connect from when you're in high school, and you said you were a carpenter for ten years. Yeah, how old are you? I just turned thirty six. Yeah. Okay. So you, basically, your twenties, you just you did labor jobs and you're just living your life. Yeah, essentially you're having a good time. More or less. I mean, I kind of, I hooked up with a partner when I was in my early twenties and moved to Halifax. Oh, you, you, you know, moved away for a bit. Moved away. Yeah. Uh, and then and, and was consistently working in the trades. I did work in the office for a, a while when I got back uh, from Halifax, but it just, I just like wasn't in a place. Or, or yeah, no, I, I was licensed. Yeah, I was okay. doing, I was, I was brokering and then, yeah, I just was not, I was not an office worker at that time. Like, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't handle do it. it. I loved being in the trades. So I hooked up with a good builder here in Hamilton and spent the, another sort of eight, nine years with him wow. and his, it was a small sort of renovator, custom home builder kind of thing. And then, yeah, a couple of things changed in my life and I just decided to make a change and my mom made me a, an offer that was pretty lucrative. That's nice. So, uh, you know, and with, you know, there's always like the, she really wants, she really wants me to be part of that business. Like yeah. she, she worked 
Well, you're the legacy, off, right? right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I mean, does she have other people involved for a long time who would take over if it mm-hmm. wasn't you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a there's a, a there, the two guys that are in there at the moment. You know, just sort of chronologically, I'm the, yeah. I'm the junior guy yeah, in the yeah. office, right? Yeah. So uh, you just happen to have the name. Or yeah, do you guys have the same name. We, well, it's different, sort of. That's another yeah. complication. Okay, yeah, we, we don't have to talk about that. But yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I mean, uh, Chris, uh, my one colleague, is uh, he's been at it for geez, like seven or eight years now and he is top shelf i mean Mm -hmm. he's he's one of the most sort of creative brokers that i've ever met and just i mean he's he's a real sort of creature of process and he has sort of nailed his process so what does creative mean in terms of a mortgage broker well there's i mean there's a couple of different things like so we i I would say that the three of us in the office all sort of have a different both sales strategy and sort of deal strategy Mm -hmm. chris has got his process down pat and he knows how to sort of work a file extremely efficiently. Okay. Uh, he's amazing when it comes to sort of customer satisfaction and he's very, he's very attentive to his clients. Yeah. He's really good. He knows the sort of back end or like the, he knows the math, I guess is a good way to okay. put it. Yeah. So if that's, if, that's probably one of the most important things. Yeah. So it? if he's, if he's dealing with somebody who's really sort of engaged in the subject matter, he can, he can explain, like he can give them a lot of confidence based on his skill levels. Then we've got my, my good friend, Steve, who actually, he's my best friend growing up. He, okay. he oh, actually got to the office before I did. That's funny. Okay. And uh, cause you know, he knew my mom and, yeah, and yeah. he was in a position where he was looking to sort of change industries. You know, he's also an extremely creative broker. He can make a square peg fit in a round hole any day of the week because if he believes in a file, he'll get it done and he'll get it done at a good interest rate. And, you know, he's he grinds out deals in a way that I've, I've never seen. Because that's why people come to mortgage brokers now anyway, right? Because, or not necessarily, but because you guys do what you do well, mm. but sometimes because they can't get what they want. Or the service that you're talking about, the service. It's a service. It's a service. And and yeah, and I mean, sort of, sort of like the one big value add and where Steve really, I think, excels in the business is that he, uh, he can, you know, because he's so dialed, like, so that just, you know, uh, he's really, like I said to you, really involved in the music industry and things like that and the arts, both here in Toronto and all over Canada. And he still is. So he's got a lot of connections in that in that field like you know and but often when you're dealing with people who are in the arts you know you're dealing with people who if they're employed at all are working you know in an official capacity are working contract or working yeah. there's no steady know. income at all exactly, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and uh, and so you know he can take those people and basically use his you know his critical thinking skills to mm. convince lenders that hey look these are good borrowers you know, just because they're, they don't fit into your sort of model of what, you know, real employment should be, which is becoming absurd anyway. Yeah, this that's, this exactly, idea, yeah, like everybody's going to be a salaried full-time yeah, benefits, all the rest of no, it. I'm not that. I was that. Most people, right? and I, I wasn't that for my whole career up until this point. Yeah, that's right. You know, like I was <laughs> an independent spots. carpenter, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, uh, with, with no debt and, uh, you know, cash flow positive yeah. and still they would, they would frown upon it. Of they? course. Yeah. I mean, I was showing zero. Like I was, you know, I was writing my income down like to like twenty five thousand dollars a year. You yeah, know what I mean, I was probably clearing sixty or seventy. That's one of the benefits of dealing with a mm. good, like an actual broker, like that. And like Steve actually said, you know, his line is like that's the difference between you know banking and brokering. Like yeah. a broker has skills that you're never going to get at the bank. Right? Yeah, the bank, you know, our, our our line is like computer says yes, computer says no. That's what you get when you go to well, the bank. A broker is a connector, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the whole idea, right? Yeah. And to me, like, because I've always been in connecting jobs, right, between the music business and finance, right, between, um, I guess, finance now 
and the public, right? Because <laughs> right? finance can be really complicated. True. And so I kind of understand a little bit about what you got, like that part of what you guys do is, is translators, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You're translating it to people who only understand policy and, uh, you know, the this person has to fit this mold and you're taking everybody in reality yeah. <laughs> and trying to convince the person that they do fit the mold. Yeah. And that sounds challenging. It is. It can be. Ex it can be extremely frustrating. Like it was one of, as a, personally, that's one of the things that I struggled with the most mm -hmm. when I came back into the business because I had so many years of sort of carpentry under my belt. Where you know the whole the beauty of the trades is like if it makes sense, you know, yeah. like you can do it yeah. if it makes yeah, sense, okay. right? This that's may not be measure. This may not be a conventional way of doing something, but you you have to solve problems all the time. Like, there isn't one specific way to do everything. So in brokering, you know, it'd be really frustrating for me in the beginning before I was sort of I would have been able to hone that craft and mm -hmm. really know what I was talking about to to run into so many roadblocks from the bank and being like why don't you guys see the potential of this person or not even the potential like the the reality of this person just because you know their T1s say this and yeah. like you know they're not able to provide you this stupid document and at, like on a personal level that was really hard for me to get used to having to work in those boxes but once you know the rules and you become a little bit more creative with it and you know sort of you you under you really have to put your head yourself in the head of the lender and the way the way they sort of profile risk and yeah. once you understand what red flags they see from the file that you're submitting you can mitigate those red flags like you can sort of cut like head those off at each pass because you know? what's what's your goal like you've already made a risk assessment of your client personally yeah and now you're trying to convince them of that but you won't accept somebody if they're Past your risk assessment, absolutely. But I that's mean, a little more. But that's part of that's arbitrary? part of. It is it is arbitrary because there are brokers, and again, like you know, there's all like any industry. There's good and there's bad, and I mean, and the term good, the terms good and bad are, are relative as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are brokers out there that'll make anything fit by you know by hook or by crook, and and part of what I when I was talking earlier about the regulation that we're under, why we're such proponents of all this additional regulations yeah. because it weeds type these types of people up because okay. at the end of the day these risk profiles even if you don't like them are exist for a reason yeah right and sure. they exist not only to protect the banking industry from a 2008 yeah. but they also exist to protect clients from yeah. default and bankruptcy and, and financial ruin and that's right? what made everything crash in the first place one of the big reasons yeah they got rid of those safeguards the, the measures yeah the zero percent forty year <laughs> mortgage, but also wasn't it a relaxed like they gave it to people with lower credit ratings? Well, in too? the states, my understanding of what happened in the states is you know relatively comprehensive, but I'm sure there's holes in it. And the biggest issue, the biggest issue in the states, and I, I could be wrong about this, but my impression of it, at least on the mortgage side, because there was other yeah. things going yeah, on course. in the back I have end, a whole right? thing in terms about of that yeah, in website, terms of like yeah. bundling investments. Yeah, that and things stuff like that. we can that don't have to talk about that. But, but on the, the mortgage on side, on the consumer yeah. side of things, my understanding is basically that you know people were the regulations weren't there, like the the sort of the the rules, the guidelines weren't there for weeding out risky borrowers. Mm. Um, so, for example, they'd have a stated income program. We have that here. Right. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's extremely hard to access, but we do have a stated income program where it's just like, oh, you know, you have unconventional employment, you're say a day laborer or whatever. Yeah. As the bank, I think it's reasonable that a day laborer will make X amount of money. Yeah. So we're going to use that as your income. And they're saying, I trust you. Is that I trust you. what they're saying? So you, yeah. so they, they literally had forms, stated income forms where you would state your income, sign it. And it's like, well, 
they that's, signed it. That's it. You know, you're so that's your income without so, any vetting at all. On well, so at first, at first, it was like, okay, we'll do the stated income thing because yeah. they had an understanding that there were people out there who, yeah, weren't showing nearly a hundred percent of their income, right? So they're like, fine. But you have to back that income up with assets. Okay. Right. Oh, so, I see. So they were like, oh, okay. So it's like, well, you know, I may not be able to prove my income, but I can show you that I've got $300,000 sitting in a bank account. Yeah. Right. So which... I'm not going to default. You know, okay. the odds are I'm not going to. So you're like, okay, fine. We'll buy that loan. The bank is basically like, we will yeah. purchase that loan. You seem like you're good for it. Right. Um, and then uh, once, you know, all the red tape, once they started breaking through all the red tape, they started uh, coming out with stated asset programs. Okay. So you had your stated income where you could just say, yeah, I make $100,000 a year. And then stated asset programs where you say, uh, like, I, I, got I, I got all this money, so don't worry about it. I'm good what? for it, right? And, you know, I mean, I, I don't need to sort of express how crazy that is. <laughs> but I mean, banks were making money hand over fist and brokers were making money hand of over course. fist because they could get anybody a loan for just... way more than they could afford. Oh, no. Right? And so from there, all and, and then so that, that was one piece of the pie. So maybe mm. that wouldn't have been an issue. If, okay, like this person's just like, oh, you know, like maybe on paper I can't qualify for this, but I know that me and my family, we're going to make this work. Yeah, if, right? which is a lot of people. Which is fine, assuming interest rates don't go up. Mm. So suddenly you're qualified, and, and I'm fuzzy on this, but but my impression was that, and I could be wrong, like I said, my impression is that a lot of people were taking variable rate mortgages because uh, mm. they were super low at the yeah. time. At pre-2008, they were like, they're they were almost were a negative lower. Interest. It was that, crazy. That why Not you would take a variable? Just brokers, whether out of ignorance or out of just sheer, you know, cutthroat sort of capitalism mm. were, were saying, you know, didn't give a shit if they were going to go up or not. Mm. Right. Uh, and maybe they, maybe, maybe the brokers didn't even know themselves what they were actually selling. I don't know. But at the end of the day, you have all these people in variable rate mortgages. All of a sudden, interest rates start to creep up. If you're already extremely heavy, heavily leveraged on your mortgage payment, yeah. right? Here, we, we, we look at an increase of 0.25% in the key lending rate, yeah. or the bank's lending rate. And I mean, people lose their minds, even though it's the difference for the average mortgage of like 40 to 60 bucks on a payment. Yeah. Right? You know, most people could absorb that. that close, right? But in the States, if they're already, you know, like, I don't know if, if you've ever talked about like debt servicing ratios on here, but if they're debt servicing ratios are already pushed like maxed out or beyond well they can't withstand any fluctuation up any upward fluctuation in interest rate let alone any change in their personal situation. yeah i mean forget something what happens. if somebody gets sick like what if somebody any loses a job yeah. whatever you know what if what if a partner dies and now you're a single income or divorce whatever right so, so when you're seeing clients that's top of mind. You want to make sure that they can not only service, but really pay this thing down. Well, and thrive, right? Thrive, like yeah. I find that our business for, for, you know, on a personal level, our business seems to attract a certain type of client for the most part. I get some, maybe something the way that like something in the way that we market ourselves or something. We're looking for people who don't want to be house poor. One yeah. Thing. People with responsible boards, people who want a good life. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's trickier and trickier in a market like Hamilton where property values are so high. It just continues, right? right? Is it, so, are we caught up to Toronto? Oh, are we well. getting almost there? I, I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I, we're kind of a different market still yeah, in Toronto, yeah. right? But I mean, in terms of property values, we're still well under Toronto. Yeah, it depends on what part of the city. But Certainly. like around I mean, here, I feel like it's creeping up to... It's, it's getting there. I mean, yeah. I'm seeing million-dollar sales now that yeah. would have been $500,000 five, six years ago. Yeah, wow. Right? 
Um, so it is pretty bonkers here, but, uh, but so yeah, so our whole model is basically, you know, this is what you can afford on paper okay. and the way banks qualify mortgages, like they, they hold them, the banks and their sort of regulators hold themselves up like this sort of pinnacle of like of financial wellness for Canadians. Well, no. that's, that's absolutely not the case. Mm. Max debt servicing is 44% of your of your uh, monthly income to, to, to service your mortgage, your property taxes and, and your heat, right? Well, they say heat, they say you heat utilities or whatever. Yeah, they, they budget a hundred dollars a month for heat and utilities. Yeah, that's not true. My internet's a hundred dollars a <laughs> yeah, month. Forget right. about everything yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. You know, and they're quali- all mortgages are qualified on your gross gross income. Yeah. Nobody makes their gross income. I don't know why we still do this. So, so when I'm seeing clients and we're all, we're all like this in the office, we're like, I can get you a $700,000 house and I'm maxing out your debt rate, your debt servicing ratios, which I'm allowed to do. Technically. But those debt servicing ratios are based on utilities, like hard costs that don't exist yeah. and uh, on income that you're not actually earning. Right. Yeah. So you, it's, it's well, really, I mean, it's, you don't want anyone de- to default. Because no. what does that? What happens to you if somebody can't pay their mortgage? Well, nothing happens to us specifically. But you, um, well, like, it, it doesn't reflect on us. No, it doesn't reflect on you. But uh, then, I guess the question is, how do you make your money? Oh, we're we're paid uh, by and large because we're the type of brokerage who handles you know anybody the type of client that could walk into any bank. We're compensated a finder's fee from whatever lender we place the mortgage with, and the finder's fee is base is a sort of a a fraction of a percentage of the mortgage amount. So you're you're paid upfront then. We're paid once the file closes. Once so, the file closes. Yeah. So if somebody defaults, you don't lose any money. You've no, already we're made. paid. Wow. So you, you could even go the complete opposite way and max people out and not care. Absolutely. And we're paid more to max people out. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is good. I like this because you know it's, a, it's a similar to like a bankruptcy trustee or you know, anybody who's sort of regulated is, yeah, you could, you, know, you could just totally take advantage of somebody and you know, uh, get more money. But you make the choice to sort of balance, right? Well, it's bad business. I mean, it is. you know, like obviously we we have like we're human beings with souls and, <laughs> and we need to sleep at Some night. people aren't though. Well, there there it's true. There's there, there's a lot of people in finance that go into finance to get rich and that and get rich alone, mm-hmm. right? At the and expense of others. Of though. course. Well, that's the whole financial system is set up. To Somebody's got to lose. Of course. Payday, yeah. lo- payday lenders uh, for one. Don't even don't like, even get me started. On you know, that. like cuz I I've done lots of stuff on that, but it's like Okay, you know, I, I could take the positive aspect of, you know, just like the positive aspect of a, maybe a better private lender mm. would be that you don't have to go to the shady ones. Yeah. Same thing, you don't have to go to the, you know, black market. You get a payday loan instead because yeah. you're not paying, you know, a thousand percent. Honestly, I think half the time I think I'd rather go to the black market. Yeah, <laughs> when I know. You, right? you really dig into payday loans. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, it basically is the black market. Maybe there's more of a threat because there's more of a threat, <laughs> right? If, if your violence, legs yeah. are going to get broken, <laughs> you're more likely to pay the debt. Otherwise, yeah, yeah the payday lenders, all they're going to do Honestly, is- a broken leg is actually probably easier to deal with <laughs> than what you have to deal with with oh a payday lender. Yeah, just it never <laughs> I'd ends. rather just take a quick broken leg, recover from that. I don't, I forget the stat now, but when I had uh, Doug Hoyes from Hoyes Michaelos on, uh, he talked about how many people who come in for bankruptcy or consumer mm-hmm. proposal, which I've gone through in the past because yep, yep. of a gambling addiction, but they come in with like, they probably have five or six payday loans yeah. like from different payday lenders. And it's a pretty hefty amount because there's nowhere else to go at that point. Yeah. Where are you going to, how are you going to pay this off? Right. Mm-hmm. And the worst one I've heard was, uh, people can go in with their like CPP and OAS checks yeah. and get a payday loan. Yeah. I'm like, it's not even a paycheck. Yeah. 
it's like it's never going to change. <laughs> like yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, right. We shouldn't get into this. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Go too far. I could go on and too on. Far. Yeah, but the point totally is, you're that. trying to save people from this terrible stuff that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I mean, even even like for younger borrowers, like like whether you're a professional, like whether you're you know in med school or you're a, a you know a retread tires for a living, it's the same advice I would give to both people. Mm-hmm. You know. But yeah, and it's not that difficult to sort of keep your family or your own personal finances at least on the debt side of things in in check but from our perspective like you know you're asking like yeah we could we could certainly profit we could do higher volume with larger mortgages and just kick people out the door but you know we're kind of in a closed somewhat closed market here like a closed ecosystem yeah we would burn ourselves out of clients i feel like if we did that was this your mom's policy absolutely yeah absolutely this is how she got like to be so good yeah yeah, hundred percent, and that's how she sort of garnered her reputation, and that's mm-hmm. how like our company, like, she was basically on her own until about eight years ago, and she's been at it for twenty five plus years. It's, they, she was a one woman show mm-hmm. for that whole time. It's only been in sort of like the recent history of her business that she's actually had people under her that she could trust, and she did like sort of burn through a couple of people that had that mindset. It's you hard know? to trust, right? Of course. It, it's, yeah. And, and it, it's her name. It's her business. That's you know right. what I mean? So it's like she really came down hard on anybody who seemed the slightest bit unethical. She she was, you know, you're out the door, which is why it was so hard for her to get employees, like that, get people to work. Is that, uh, I mean, other than the offer that your mom made you, is it is this what drew you back into the business? Does this feel like something that you want to be doing? I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily what drew me back into the business, but it's certainly what keeps me in the business, Yeah, right? There is a good deal of satisfaction to be had in my job when I know that it's one thing to sort of put a young, happy, professional couple in a house. That feels good. Sure. But what feels like the best for me is when I've had people who have gotten either bad advice or they've screwed up their credit or whatever. Yeah. And I kind of hold their hand for a few years. And we do, you know, in some cases we got to do the private, like if they already own a house, we've got to do the private thing for a year. Then we got to do a B lender for a year. And then finally, after a lot of hard work on their part, mostly, and okay. advice from me, yeah. all of a sudden they are, they're killing it. So you you're, you're actually, you have a network of people that you can... Uh, other professionals that you can refer people to if they don't. I say, oh yeah, for sure on the private end. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so yeah you have people do. on the private end who, yeah. and that means that they're higher interest rate than you. Yep. Uh, but they probably meet your ethical standards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I can protect it. Like if I'm reviewing the contract, yeah. Even if it's a shady lender, I can protect that borrower from sure. the lender. You know, at the end of the day, all you need to do is pay your pay your mortgage, and and you won't have any problems. Really, it seems so simple, right? But uh, but you know, the problem is the private lenders get shady when you've got a mortgage broker, a private lender, usually a shady lawyer, and usually a shady appraiser all working together. So there's, that's and those people are those people mm, are that's fraud. Like that's straight yeah. Up. Fraud. Course, it's straight course. up criminal activity at that point. And I mean, there's a, and I can say this guy's name cause he's been charged, but uh, Dennis Kenna was a prominent sort of, well, prominent. I don't want to say it, use that word, but he was a notorious, notorious mortgage broker here in Hamilton, in Hamilton for about the same amount of time as my mom. Really? And she knew him and the guy was a snake from day one. Wow. And, uh, and I've run it across a couple of his files across my desk where people are like, you know, been locked out of their house be, you know, for non-payment one time. But I mean, I look at, I review these contracts and I'm like, there's no way you could have ever paid this. Mm. He has set this thing up so oh. that the minute you screw up, he can change the locks on your thing. And then guess what? You know, his wife's company. So, you know, his like 
quote arm's length <laughs> unquote yeah. company uh then repossesses your house and puts tenants in it like it it goes it's and this is somebody who has the same license as you have yeah yeah and has been working in it for about the same amount of time and i mean but you get to that level in my industry and and you see a lot of shit like there's a lot of uh we don't, I mean, we try to obviously avoid even like touching that environment, yeah, but you course. can't help it. It's a small enough city that you run into this stuff. You but see they it. take these people down. You say this guy. Yeah. Got, it took 30 years and God knows how many families he destroyed. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, this is, you know, like on the other end of all of this, the whole system is made up, is not made up to, to sort of benefit the consumer. Right. That's why I think mortgage brokers can, can have real value in society. Yeah. It's not just about getting people a good interest rate. Uh, although for most of our clients, that is what it's about. Good, good interest rate terms. Good it comes terms down to that, but the added value, but you can, but I mean, without having that sort of like person who's working on your behalf, like there's, you, you can really, I don't know. You can, you can really screw yourself up because nobody, like nobody knows the finer points of these things. And it's so important. It's, it's a, uh, it's always the biggest purchase you're ever going to make. I yeah. mean, nobody goes around buying other bigger things in the house and unless this is what you do on the side. Yeah. So you, so if somebody, if they have a mortgage already, they can come into you and maybe second opinion. Do you do, do that? Yeah. I mean, uh, or if they're up for renewal, well, how yeah, does it work? Same, what, what same thing. So, all right. So ba- the basic, you know, the basic, I guess, three categories would be uh, first time buyers, yeah. right? Obviously. Um, you've got people whose mortgages are up for renewal who are yeah. looking to either switch lenders to find a better interest rate, like you say, get a second opinion. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the people who might be in trouble with uh, personal debt. And okay. they'll come to you they and want to look at, at breaking their mortgage to suck equity out of their house to to refinance. Those are often the most satisfying deals. You hear all, all the time that they, that uh, bank economists and uh, Bill Morneau and all these people don't like that ca- Canadians are using their homes as piggy banks, et cetera. And I don't like that either no. at heart. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, a common refrain in our industry is like debt is debt is debt. If you've got $150,000 in consumer debt, and believe oh. me, those people exist. And wow. we're not talking about wealthy people. And we're talking about credit cards. Credit at, cards. Like at 15, 20%. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Use your house as a piggy bank and pay that off at two and a half percent. Yeah, please. Like if you're already <laughs> you know, in it, if you're already in the you've shit. You've already taken right? on the debt. Yeah, but the, the, the careful thing there is. How do we know they're not going to just repopulate? That well, I mean, that's credit? that's that's the wild card. I mean, we can only advise. Yeah. You know, I can't. I can't. We, nobody can babysit these people. Nobody like so. All all we can do is give them the best advice possible on how to maintain a, a pay off that refinance debt yeah. quickly sure. because it's you know it's all well and good to to roll it into your mortgage at two and a half percent, but if you're amortizing that over thirty years, then yes. it's, no, it's pointless. No, yeah. So a pay it off quickly and and b avoid getting in that that situation in the future do you ever refer people to counselors is that something you've ever done we don't really touch that end of the business too much usually unfortunately uh but by the time people have gotten to that point we're usually the next call okay Uh, and i mean i i could go on about sort of the sort of the trustee the bankruptcy proposal business in this kind of like in at least i don't know if it's provincially regulated or what but at least in ontario as i understand it um it's certainly a necessary service but um i see a lot of people who who are sort of like wounded by it too more than they need to be there's a lot of different ones like i work with with a really great one when i did my proposal and and i think uh, hoys michaelos has a great reputation Mm -hmm. they have offices all over the province uh but i know there's a lot of competitors and i just had laurie campbell on from credit canada Mm -hmm. and you know they're a nonprofit. they don't they don't actually do any of the trustee stuff but they 
and people can come in and talk. Well, to that's them what and, they need because yeah. there is there people do as you know people get to a point at, like a financial sort of cliff edge yeah. where that's your only option. I have advised people to to pursue that mm-hmm. right where I'm just like there's yeah. nothing I can do on my end. Right? Yeah, I can't even get a private lender to look at you. You need to fix this first. Yeah, but and I think when I originally met you in my office, I think I said something to this effect. They need to be advised properly at that time mm. because if not, I've, I've had people that are four years out of a pr- proposal discharge and they think they've been doing everything right the whole time, but they got one piece of bad advice and they're starting the clock over again. Really? Not that they're going back oh. into proposal, just no. that they're still not ready to buy by bank standards. Yeah. And I mean, it took me, like when I got on my proposal, it still took another year. Sorry, it took two years, of course, for it to, uh, no, took, uh, yeah, two years for it to clear mm-hmm. and then they wanted another year after that before anyone actually looked at anything mm-hmm. because it just looks like a blank space. Yeah. Well, and I mean, so just, you know, for anybody who's listening, this is the rule of thumb for propo- coming out of a proposal. Usually it's two years now. Maybe it was different when you did it. Yeah. Uh, the standard right now is two years clean repayment. And this is what screws most people up. Two trade lines. So two active pieces of credit Interesting. for two years. Okay? I had one. Yeah. Right. So like I, even if it's how a, long ago secured. Was that? How long ago uh, So I paid off my uh, 2012, I think I paid off. And then it, I think it was three years then. It okay. would have been cleared by the summer of 2015. So I can't, I mean, I wasn't in the business at the time, so I can't really speak yeah. to what the, the criteria were at that time. Now, I should say that I'm talking about A-level financing. I'm talking about big bank financing. Yeah. Okay. Not like, there's, yeah, all sort of, there's all kinds of lenders. There's I, lenders that'll deal with people who are I still in the bank and I wanted a mortgage, exactly. they're, they're looking at. So anybody who's wanting to access those types of funds, it's these days anyway, and, and this stuff change, does change pretty frequently. But these days, it's two years um, credit rebuild, right? Mm. Um, the two trade lines, and by that, so we're talking, you know, a trade line would be a credit card, line of credit, vehicle loan, student loan, whatever. Yeah. But the kicker is banks really prefer revolving credit mm. when they're d- determining your credit character. So everybody's like, well, like, you know, TD gave me an auto loan. Well, it's like TD will give uh, like your mom's pet. Yeah, you can't access loan, that again. Right? right? Yeah. So the, 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 the sort of like, as far as I mean, like you know, the bank's twisted logic, um, the, the, the best kind of credit to have is a revolving credit because it shows real sort of responsible credit use to be able to borrow, pay back, borrow, pay back, yeah. cetera, right? There's no fixed payment involved. You know, there's minimum payments, which means that if you pay it back, you're making more than your minimum payments, et cetera. Yeah. So I was able to get two credit cards when I, when my, uh, proposal was cleared from my, uh, credit report, yeah. they basically offered them to me right away. That's which wonderful. crazy. But the, the mortgage people, didn't like the fact that I had this blank space on there. They needed another, they needed a whole year at least of that. But you're saying two, at least two years two, these of These days, these days what I'm safe. getting, the, well, yeah, if you want to be Because really my credit safe. rating is like stellar, right? But now it would be. Well, now I you know a, how to do it. Well, no, but I, because I also, I avoid debt like the plague sure, sure. if I can and I have uh, only positive net worth. Well, so right? yeah, so two trade lines, two years rebuild. And then another thing is like, if you miss a single payment, even on a cell phone or something like yeah. that, start that clock over. Really, if you you can be you can you can be two like a you know three days before the end of that two years. If you if there's one you know R on your credit rating, just start the clock over. My wife wonders why I want to pay like the cell phone bill rate when it comes in. Yeah, yeah. Because it's because I I don't want to have to go through any of that again. Oh my god! Just after having to not that I really want. Well, you'd probably be in good shape now. You could screw up once or twice. I'd probably be be okay (laughs) now. But it's just like when you go through that and you have an R seven or R nine, whatever it was, I have. You know, which which technically you know means inability to pay debts as they become due. Yeah. Like, what if you you, you may not need credit right away, but then you know, five years down the line, you're like, it's hey, I need doing. a mortgage, and 
you can't get one. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, the other mistake that people make is just not reestablishing period. Cause of course they're gun shy at that point. And of who course. could blame them? Well, they want to live without credit. Exactly. And I, I get that. I get, I, I totally, totally get Yeah. It. People who don't want credit. Yeah. Cause credit can be dangerous for some people, sure. but they're like, I don't know. Find a way to use it responsibly. Yeah. Find a way to, to just, you know, I had a collateralized credit card, you know, from people's trust in Vancouver. Yeah. Like that, that's how I built it during the proposal. And then after, of course, people threw me credit ready cards. To go. There's a lot of ways to do this, but the key here is, you know, and so you get people coming to you with a whole bunch of different situations and you have possibilities for them. Uh, how, how many of the people that come to you do have to do a refinancing? Like, is this a common thing or is uh, it a, a rare thing? I mean, in our business, it's, again, it's, I would say that a refinance is, I mean, if, if my colleague Chris ever listens to this, he'll like smack me for not knowing this because he's got all these statistics. It's okay. That's, I think, that's Chris. I think it's, I, know, I would say maybe like 30 or 40% of our, of our business is refinance. Okay. But very often, you know, the, the other end of refinance isn't just to bail people out of debt or, you know, put that debt onto their mortgage, I guess is more accurate. The thing with refinance too is, you know, to, to add value to your asset, right? So a lot of people mm-hmm. refinance to put an addition on their house or to throw in a new fancy kitchen or whatever. Sure. When I'm going through through those files, like if I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow, yeah, like $50,000 spent now is going to be $150,000 in value in three or four years. Is that true? Very, very, depending on what you're doing. Sure. Like sexy things like, you know, and like kitchens, bathrooms. So that, so there's a legitimate reason. You're adding value to an appreciating asset at that point. So, and for those people who are in neighborhoods that can support that kind of increase, et cetera, then like it makes sense. But, you know, some people will refinance to do things that are totally frivolous yeah. Or, or that I'll look at it and be like, this is not going to help you if you're hoping to, if you think that this $150,000 is going to like get you, like double your money, it's not. So you tell yeah. them this, honestly. I try to do my best. But then they, they'll decide to proceed. And you're, you're not going to say like, no. But no, I mean, unless, this, unless the person has is, is proven themselves to be completely clueless. Yeah. And, and like, you know, like we have, there's forms that we have clients sign, like sort of informed borrower forms and things yeah. like that to just go over and be like, listen, like, you know, if, if a client decides to do something against my advice, providing that it's not like fraud. Yeah. Yeah. And even if they do follow my advice, we still have them sign the same form, which is basically like, I understand the advice that's been given to me. And, and, and I've actually put forth forms to people that I consider to be high risk borrowers saying, listen, this was my advice in writing. You are choosing to not follow this advice. I'd like you to sign this form so that if it ever comes back, you know, if you do default on the loan and there's some sort of an investigation or whatever, I can say, look, this was not my idea. And I, I should say that I've only done that once and I ended up actually divorcing the clients before they ever okay. purchased because they just were proved themselves again and again to be making poor decisions despite my advice. Well, what I'm seeing is there's, there's a, there's a couple of lines, right? Like there's a personal line. Mm-hmm. Like if you wouldn't do something and maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable, but then there's a reasonability line. Like, well, I don't know everything and I'm not going to, I'm not this person. They have a higher risk tolerance than me. Exactly. So you have to kind of ride those two lines, right? Like you can't always be like, I'm conservative and I'm frugal, so yeah. you can't do this. And <laughs> Well, at the end of the day, like, you know, that's, that's like what capitalism is supposed to be all about, yeah. right? Risk takers and, right. and investor, like investment and things like that. So you're right though. Like there, there is a tightrope. I advise, I say, you know, I don't personally think this is a great idea, but I see what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And uh, good luck to you. <laughs> I think that's hard for, I mean, real estate agents probably face that too. Yeah. It's like, I wouldn't buy this house or I don't think it's a good investment, but then the the people looking at it, they love this house and they want it to be their house. It's hard not to get your personal 
preferences involved. Yeah, isn't it? absolutely. And I mean, we're in a pro, like for, you know on a personal or a professional level, we're in a pretty fortunate position that you know our book of our 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 book of clients at this point is so well established, and and such a large percentage of our business comes from referrals mm-hmm. that we kind of have like trust built in a lot. Yeah, you know, a lot of times, nice. if if somebody sits down, you know, one of my first questions, especially to new buyers, is like, so like how how savvy would you say you are yeah. in this world? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and most people are totally honest and just like, I have no idea what the hell I'm talking yeah. about. But you know, if somebody sits down and they're like, look, I've been buying and selling houses for years. Like my, mm. my dad did it, whatever. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, I don't know everything. People trust you. You have a, a house in a residential area. You know, you're basically it's the only business like mm-hmm. in the, <laughs> like if, until you get over to the next block, like i I walk by your, your business which is a house, yep. basically. Does yep. somebody? It was live? actually a convenience store. When oh, I was okay, in, it yeah. was. Oh, I used so, to buy cigarettes there when I was in middle school. So how long ago <laughs> did, did uh, it was your mom? That it was twenty five years. She's been in that location. Oh, she, in that yeah. specific location. Yeah. So I like the mural. Yeah. On the wall. What, uh, the, what does it say? Dead zombies. Uh, yeah. Don't become a dead zombie. Is yeah. that what it says? Something like that. And yeah. this is a zombie. Like, yeah, is I mean, this true? Like, don't become a dead zombie, which really just means like be mindful and think about stuff, right? Yeah. It did like have somebody local paint that or? Yeah, actually. Uh, oh, man. Again. Or how long has that been there? That's been there for a, co- a few years now, maybe five years now. We're actually looking at, at uh, updating it with something different at this point. Sure. But, but I mean, we, we're kind of loath to do that as well because we get a lot of good feedback on it. Did people like, Instagram it and stuff? Yeah, and I've had, I've had clients be like, yeah, you know, we drive by here all the time. It's really my kids wanted to come in here because like, yeah. they see the dead zombies. Well, I just, day. I run by there and I walk by on my way to get donuts mm-hmm. on Lock Street and <laughs> I was like, I got to check these guys out. So that's, that's your, so your, your main business is what you said it, or it is, it is your business. So the, the new home, first time home buyers, yeah. the people coming in at the end, at the time to renew their mortgage yep. and then refinancing if they need it, but I mean, well, and then I guess purchase and sale transactions. Okay. Right? So yeah. that's same, but that's basically a purchase. Yeah. That yeah. And so that's like, that's your specialties. That's what we do. And that's yeah, what you we do. Don't like, we don't really do dabble in commercial. Um, yeah. We don't really dabble in any other kind of investment. I mean, we can source private funds, uh, for people, but very often we'll just kick that over to people that really know what they're doing. Same and this thing. Is, this is the Hamilton air, area. Like how far do you stretch out? I mean, we've done mortgages in St. John's. We've done yeah, okay, mortgages so you, in BC. Really? I mean, obviously Anywhere in the, Canada. the bulk of our business yeah. is here, but you know, because our clients are pretty mobile. So if, if a client of one of yours goes over somewhere else, they'll like, still come to us. For of the course. Mortgage. And you can, and you can handle anything in any of the provinces. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've done Quebec? any territories yet. Uh, I think we can. Do I Quebec. always ask about Quebec. I think they have we can totally do, different. They laws. do have different rules, and I know that mortgage brokers don't make very much money there. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, none of the territories. Are maybe I don't the know about the territories. Well, well, we're not. I, you know speak what? I bet. That. I bet we can't do the territories because of the of permafrost. So the well, a lot of property, a lot of properties in the territories wouldn't meet most lender criteria. So I imagine oh. that most mortgages in the territories, I'm, I'm speculating, would probably be handled by local ha- uh, credit unions. Yeah. Okay. That I mean, that makes a lot of that, sense. That would probably be okay. It. But uh, you know, just. And give you guys a call. So okay. So your website is personalmortgage.ca. Yeah. Personalmortgage.ca. Or the personal mortgage group. No, it's Should definitely personalmortgage.ca. I know. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Okay. Are you going to look at your business card? <laughs> uh, do do, do I bring a business card? <laughs> no. <laughs> and okay. And we can tell. We can say where your location is. Sure. We're at uh, 233 Queen Street South, uh, on the corner of Queen and Charlton in Hamilton. Yeah, which is like two minutes away from my house. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't need a mortgage yet, but uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll maybe get there. Well, I hope to be top of your list when my uh, when my wife uh, graduates from medical school there you go there you go yeah well it's interesting i actually just finished a, a guy a couple from winnipeg she's at residence at st joseph's an anesthesiologist oh so, perfect oh yeah, we've i think got, that's forever we've got a lot of doctors it's like the 30 years of residency i think yeah. that's yeah. 
Well, there's some of them. I forget what the longest is. I think uh, orthopedic surgeon or something. Oh, is like that right? That. Oh, that makes sense. They, <laughs> they were so long. Yeah. Like oh, I can't believe it. And uh, and they don't yeah. they don't pay great while you're doing that. That's either. it, right? But I guess they're like. But it's funny because you know <laughs> the people that I have that are the, and I don't know if this is appropriate or not. But the people that I have that have the most significant debt are always physician or you know pre med yeah, or, exactly. or, or resident yeah. physicians because the bank's like, oh, you're in med school. Here's a two hundred thousand dollar line of credit. Yeah. We know you're good for I it. I can get and, you. And, and yeah. I, Usually at prime too. Yeah. Like usually at three percent. Yeah, it's like it's like here's all of the money. That's yeah. exactly what happened. You're That's right. all the rich. I, I've got a, an aunt who's a professor at uh, Notre Dame down in the states. Oh man! And she's she got she got tenure there years ago. Which I think she's a political scientist. And she was on the phone to me. I was on the phone with her the other day, and she's like, you know, this is how the rich get richer. I just got a year a year off paid like just because I published a book they're like (laughs) she's like I want some kind of award they gave me a year off page she's like this system is broken (laughs) yeah seriously like it should be the prizes give a whole bunch of other people yeah a a leg up a leg up exactly but then same thing you know doctors it's just like you know you've got somebody who's a mechanic and it's and it's they're pulling teeth to get an auto loan and then you you know it's like you're in school to be a doctor here's two hundred thousand dollars at the lowest interest you're not lower than a mortgage I know it really is a, a messed up thing well Hopefully we can keep doing what we're doing to try to help people, yeah. you know, the ones that are in need. But, uh, okay, so Boyce Collins, the personal mortgage group. group. Got it. Personalmortgage.ca on Queen Street, Queen and Charlton in Hamilton. But, you know, anywhere, just check them out. I'll put all this Google stuff in the it. Google it. Thanks for coming by. This is great. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can subscribe to a podcast. Leave a review wherever you can, too. Hopefully Apple Podcasts, because that's where people go to look. If you're already a subscriber, please let me know what you think of the show. You can email me at bo at bohumphreys.com or tag me on Twitter in a nice post or share an episode at bohumphreys. It would really be nice to know who's out there and who's listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Personal Finance Show. Next week, my guest will be Eric Arnold, CEO of Plans Well.